Tango Podcast, brought to you by members of Teach for America, South Louisiana, and Greater New Orleans. I'm Ashley. I'm Taylor. And I'm Henry. We're three educators who now support teachers across Louisiana. We like to talk about education and current events. We have opinions. What's yours? Hello, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to episode four of Entangled. My name is Henry. I am one of the hosts for this podcast. With me, I have Taylor Ashley and a very special guest, our very first guest on this podcast. Her name is Dana. Dana is a coach and CRP specialist for the TFA GNO region, and she is going to be talking to us today about culturally relevant pedagogy. So Dana, welcome. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Hey, hey shout out to Dana. Hey, to- We're really happy to have y'all. I'm also very happy to always see Ashley and Taylor. It's good to be in a room with y'all. How are y'all doing? You know, I'm doing. Happy, happy Thursday. Is it Thursday? I don't know what day it, it is. is. I never know what day it is. <laughs> We, we are recording on Thursday. This podcast will come out next Thursday. Period. Time is a social construct at this point. Who really knows what day it is? Everything is a social construct. Everything is a social. See, me and Dana are going to be soul sisters even more at the end of this. That's great. So I wanted to start us off by uh, sharing a few stories as educators. You know, we've all here had the opportunity to teach And we all taught different grade levels. I was an ELA teacher in high school. And so a story to me that sticks out, and I wanted to make this one humorous and also one that has a lesson. And this is one of the times where I learned the lesson of humility, humility with students. Let me tell you, what happened was I've always been physically active, right? And so this was like a Friday afternoon where they had the Special Olympics happening in our school. And I wanted to take my class out there, my last class, to see the Olympics. But when we got there, it was, it was all over. So I said, I mean, what the heck? We're already out here. So I tried to instigate a little like competition between them. So hey, how about, you know, you race, you race this person and you, you two should race each other. But everyone was too shy. So I said, fine, anybody can race me. And this linebacker who was about 260 something pounds said, I'll race you. And I got very cocky. I said, you? All right. And then I told the whole class, I tell you guys what, if Jason can beat me in a sprint, then I'll buy the whole class donuts. So they're all like, all right. So everybody got like invested. All right, all right. So Jason comes down from the stands and he tells me, first thing he's like, all right, I'll race you, but I can only do a 40 yard dash. And my cocky self was like 40, 50, 60, 100, whatever, dude, let's do it. So he tells me, all right, but just know that if I beat you, that's sad. I'm 260 pounds. I was so confident. I was like, you're not going to beat me, Jason, but all right. So we get another teacher to come down. He counts us off. This dude gets in this like track position. You know, you ever seen those track races where like they like get down on their knees and everything? He got down into that position. And I'm thinking, this guy is doing too much. Like, I just have one foot in front of me. 
And when they say go, I cannot believe how fast this dude could run. He took off. He was in front of me and I tried so hard to catch him and I couldn't and I lost the race. So when I turned around, I see the rest of my class on their feet, cheering, clapping, saying, yeah, we're getting donuts. And I was like, never underestimate your students again. Never. You played never. yourself. You really yep, played I really yourself. did. He I was really ready. Did. He was ready and he <laughs> lost. I told you, I learned humility that day. Oh, gosh. So I'm going to make the conclusion that you never raced your kids again. Well, no, so you I didn't I, learn your you didn't learn your lesson. No, you? no, no. I did because I like, you know, I like that kind of competition, but I never placed a bet ever mm, again. Mm, <laughs> I stopped mm. gambling. <laughs> <laughs> gambling on the schoolyard. Yeah. With your kids. I would like to hear Dana's story. I would like our guest to go next. Me too. Okay. Um Mine doesn't actually have a lesson. Well, it is a lesson, but it's not a funny lesson. So I have taught middle school ELA before that I taught um, like high school, but my funniest moments are always in middle school. Seventh graders are funny and they think they know everything, which is the hilarious part. I had a student, Rakab. He, I swear he's going to be the next Keegan-Michael Key when he grows up. He is the funniest and most animated person. He can do voices really well. So he would always like mimic the other teachers and it'd be like really good. And we would really like sit and watch him. So one day he was like, can I read aloud? And I was like, sure. So he like reads aloud and he like gets up and is walking around the classroom being like super animated. And the kids are completely into it. And I was like, y'all are not this attentive when I'm up here. So I'm irritated one. He like comes around and grab, grabs my clicker and he's like starts going through the questions on my PowerPoint and he like teaches my class for a hot 45 minutes. And I was just like, one of was hilarious because I was like, the kids are really, y'all are really listening and like doing the work. And I'm just standing here like, so, so what are you here for? I just want to know, what am I here for? Um, it was funny. He is the type who was funny all the time and not at the appropriate time. So some, now I can laugh at it now, but I felt played in that moment. But also I was like, I think, I think this might be your calling, just being in front of people. And he is like, I don't, I can't even remember if we did like superlatives then, but he is the funniest person I've ever met. And I can't wait till I see him on TV. And I want, I want to shout out because I gave him his first stage. So remember me, Rakai. <laughs> I love that. I love when kids take over classrooms and you're standing there and you're like, wait a minute now, why are you doing a better job than me? And why are these kids paying attention to you? Exactly. So what am I here for? Why am I here? Oh my God. My story actually connects to that. So Dana, I taught kindergarten and every so often when we would, we would be doing reviews, I would let a kid come up and teach. So there would be like a number bond activity that we would be doing with math. And number bonds, by the way, are like two plus two equals four, just in case anybody knows, if you don't know. <laughs> and so a little Takari, Takari was literally this big. He was so small, he was so tiny and he had these little locks 
and he was the cutest little nugget ever. And so he came up and he was teaching the class, but nobody was listening to him because unlike middle schoolers, kindergartners don't care who's up there. They're just like, whatever, I'm gonna do whatever I want. And so Takari was trying to get their attention. And so I was like whispering to him, like, hey, you should tell them to do like an attention getter or something like that. Y'all, he mocked me and he sounded just like how I sound when I am trying to get my kids' attention. Mind you, I'm like sitting on the table off to the side. And I was like, is this what I sound like? Because he kept repeating himself. And obviously with small children, you have to keep repeating yourself because attention span is just non-existent. And so I was sitting there amazed because he was like, I need everybody to catch a bubble and I need everybody to track me. And he just said it like I would say it. And he's like, okay, so now we are going to learn about number bonds. And I'm like, this is the most amazing thing ever. Takari was also a showman, but he was a little bit more shy. So when I gave him that stage, he showed out completely. And I, I was here for it. And I'm like, so I'm going to go eat my lunch because I did not get a chance to do that. You got it, Takari. I'll be here for support. <laughs> I'll be and in the back. I'll be in the back. Luckily, this was not an instructional day. This was a review. So it did not really matter. But that was that was one of the greatest moments where I'm like, I love watching y'all teach each other. And they had so much fun. And I had fun watching them do it. And I had fun even though I was being roasted slightly. But it's fine. Whatever. Baby. Okay, so y'all, I taught middle school math. Um, for the majority of my teaching career. And so I'm sure Taylor has heard this story before and maybe Dana too, Henry, I don't know. But I always think about my one of my first funniest moments with students. This was my first day teaching at a brand new school in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Brand new charter school, brand new teacher, brand new everything, right? So it had been a long day. I probably, I woke up, around four to be on the bus with my kids around like 5 30 because I had to drive up to Baker which for context was probably about 30 minutes from my house early in the morning before the sun came up so you know I knew I had to ride the bus going to the school and I had to ride the bus you know when my kids went home so I've been up since 4 a.m we had a long day of kids being in the gym because it's like they're first week culture, you know, whatever they call it, culture camp or something like, almost like a PD for kids. So it's the end of the day. Now you already know Louisiana in the afternoon is hot as all get out, right? And the buses ain't had no air. Oh, I get on the bus, right? And mind you, I'm like a first year teacher. So I'm like, y'all gonna, yeah, I'm gonna I'm a come up here. I'm the teacher, right? I'm thinking like that. Like in hindsight, that was, that was dumb, sis. That was dumb because that's not how you do it. But in my head, I'm out of left institute. I'm like, I'm good, baby. Like this first year about to be, it's going to be hard, but I'm good. So I get on the bus and you know, kids, they like starting to chill. Da, 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 da. So one of the students, Zacharias, He's on the bus and he's like, man, Miss Jordan, like, I'm about to just walk home. Cause I guess the buses were like, maybe just waiting for maybe the, the good to go or make sure all the kids were on the bus. Cause it's the first day. So he's like, I'm about to walk home. I'm about to walk to Scotlandville. I'm about to walk to Scotlandville. Like I live in Scotlandville. We here, we here. I'm like, we're in Baton Rouge. What are you talking about? 
Now, I had just moved to Louisiana probably about two months before. So I'm like, I'm, I'm learning the city. You're like, I live in, I live in Scotlandville. Like, I'm right around. The, I said, no, we're in Baton Rouge. What are you talking about? All the kids on the bus are looking at me like, this lady is crazy. And she clearly don't know where she at. Y'all, in that moment, because I was so hot and so tired, it wasn't funny. But let me tell you, looking back, it was hilarious because you can't always think that you know what you're doing. Sometimes you got to learn from kids. And I was humbled, baby. So now I know where Scotlandville is. Shout out to BR. So we are going to transition into our current events. We're going to learn a little bit about what is happening in the news in education in Louisiana. So first, our first story, I feel like a news anchor. Louisiana School Board seeks to double aid requested by governor which would include a $400 teacher pay raise. So John Bell Edwards, I guess he wrote to the school board and was like, hey, we need some money for our schools. And so they were asking for an $80 million hike for public schools. Let me say that again, $80 million. Y'all, I don't even know what that kind of money looks like, but the money would provide a $40 million boost to teacher pay by $400 a year and a $40 million increase in basic state aid for public schools. And so the legislative session for this begins on April 12th, and then they will be having a conversation with the Bessie board, which is the state board of education to figure out what can happen to see if we can get some raises for our teachers. $400 extra a year is great and insufficient. Uh, That's school supplies. Barely. 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 That is, yeah. So I'm sure a lot of teachers would appreciate, especially teachers who teach in a traditional public school, they would appreciate that $400. And we also know that teachers deserve a lot more money than what they are currently getting paid. So hopefully by the end of the summer, we will know something regarding this uh, bill or whatever. I don't know what it's called at this point, but maybe we'll be able to do an update on it to see what exactly is the progress that will be happening. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm being ungrateful because I, I always appreciate a race, but I think I think you're you're right. It's just like not nearly enough, but I do want to at least acknowledge that under John Bell Edwards, uh, teachers have been getting pay raises you know, just like more frequently than, mm-hmm. I mean, for as long as I've been here than any other time. So yeah, shout out yeah. to him. And our next story is about the Louisiana Department of Education awards $400,000 in planning grants to improve career and college readiness for eight Louisiana school systems. So Bessie, the Louisiana Department of Education announced that eight school systems will receive fast forward regional planning grants. And that initiative is designed to increase the number of high school graduates who earn associate's degrees through an apprenticeship for graduation. And so the recipients are Assumption Parish, DeSoto Parish, East Baton Rouge Parish, Jefferson, Rapides, Richland, St. Landry, and Vernon Parishes. So I'm excited to see like what some schools are gonna be able to produce with that money. And so being able to have an associate's degree will cut down on the amount of money that they will have to spend to do their like baseline 
entry-level college coursework, which would be very helpful to a lot of students. And our last story is also from Louisiana, Belize. Louisiana Department of Education developing future school leaders through aspiring principal fellowship. So they are supporting school systems across the state in developing school leaders, and there will be an aspiring principal fellowship to allow educators and staff to build leadership skills essential to the principal role. We will make sure that all of these stories are in your in our show notes so that if you are interested, I don't really know how it works, but if you are interested or your school is interested potentially in this fellowship and being a principal, there are links listed in there to take you to the appropriate places to sign up. And last, but certainly not least, it is Women's History Month. Right on the tails of Black History Month, where we get to celebrate all the women in history, in the present, and in the future of all the great things that they have done for us, all of the progress that they have made, all of the social innovations that have been happening because of, I mean, if, if I do so say, say so myself, women, sorry, bomb.com. And we <laughs> want to be sure to acknowledge all women everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it is very important because there are women in the trans community who have been doing a lot of great work, social justice wise, education wise, policy wise. And we want to make sure that everybody is getting their roses, not just cis women. So shout out to Women's History Month and shout out to International Women's Day. That was a few days ago, but I'll be celebrating all, all month. <laughs> hey, can I ask y'all a question? Um, I'd say as Black women, is it pretty cool to have a uh months back to back that celebrate you back to back yes okay. yes I, i'm taking advantage of all the things i don't know what month april is but it's gonna be a month for us it is <laughs> so we're going to transition into our teachers lounge and this is something that i'm super excited about culturally relevant pedagogy it's something that as an educator, I struggled with, to be quite honest, because I was a math teacher. And so I always felt like it didn't necessarily relate. However, I know that since I've been out of the classroom, it has since, it's kind of evolved. And I feel like there's been more information put out there. Um, there are a lot of people who are able to teach it to our core members and, you know, give information to staff in different ways. So I'm super excited for this conversation. So Dana, shout out to you. <laughs> So to begin our conversation, and I have somewhat of a definition, but I want to hear from you. How do you define CRP? What is CRP to you? So CRP is a way of life, and that's like my general definition. Um, so when I think about uh, CRP, so there's lots of different variations and like synonyms and culturally relevant, culturally responsive. I lean on the side of culturally responsiveness. Dr. Uh, Gloria Latson billings who will be at the summit on Saturday, I will be there, I am a stan. Um, but anyways, she coined the um, term in the 90s as like culturally relevant pedagogy and Geneva Gay kind of like built on her learnings and coined the term responsiveness, which just has a stronger focus on um, strategies and practices. They're both based on the same three pillars of academic success, cultural competence, and critical consciousness. 
So like they're grounded in the same thing. But as a coach, I lean more on just like the strategies and practices because that's what, you know, we do as coaches. Yeah. And being able to implement it is the key. Like being able to know what it is, is one thing, but being able to implement it is also important. So thank you for that definition, Dana. And I don't know, I, now that I think about it, uh, Henry gave you a bit of an introduction, but can you tell the people, like, what do you do on staff? Why is CRP so important to you? Um, sure. Yeah. I am an instructional coach on staff manager of teacher leadership development is like, you know, the official term. This year is the first year that we are implementing specialties. Um, So we have content, DEI, wellness, and um, CRP and classroom culture. I was really excited to have the opportunity to lean into CRP and culture because that's how I lead through my classrooms. It's how I lead in like life through relationships and through, you know, culture like that's just how I operate so it was like really easy to kind of like transition into this like this is your specialty because that's what I was doing anyway so I'm just glad that somebody put a title on it and now I can do it and like feel confident that I'm doing it that's what's up and I don't know if the people know but Taylor and Henry also work on staff as instructional coaches we love an acronym in TFA. So MTLDs are their acronym, um, which is the Manager of Teacher Leadership Development. And um, if I can be quite frank, these three people are phenomenal at their job and they work hard day in and day out to support our core members. So just giving y'all a virtual hug through our Zoom airways because we couldn't do it without y'all. <laughs> so Thank I'm you gonna- for that. No problem. So I'm going to invite Taylor and Henry into the conversation. Um, Dana, thank you so much for that definition to kind of get us started in our conversation. But I'm just going to throw this question out here. So growing up, did your teachers use CRP? And if so, how? And if not, why do you think that they didn't? Yeah, that's a, that's a <laughs> great question. I, I, I love it. I love it because I think when I was a student, Some teachers did, but I don't think they knew they were using it. I think the reason why is because it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. I remember some teachers sometimes using examples that would make sense to us, you know, that would try to appeal to what we know. But I don't think, you know, they were intentionally thinking, oh, let me use some culturally relevant pedagogy. I think they were just trying to make the material relevant to us, or I think they were just trying to make sure that we understood what they were talking about. I really appreciate Dana saying that it is a way of life because that is what I try to get across to core members. And so if I backtrack a moment to think about like my teachers, I'm sure there were some teachers who were like embodying what it meant to be a culturally relevant instructor. Um, even principals doing that as well. I can't specifically pinpoint a teacher who was doing it or who was not because I don't think of it as something you do. Like Dana said, it's something that you just live out and are very intentional about as opposed to like, I have black kids and I am going to rap to them about whatever. Like that is not culturally relevant. I'm sure I did have teachers doing great things and tending to our needs as students, um, which is a component of that and holding me to high ac- academic expectations, with a, which is another component of CRP. 
thinking about my CRP experiences, I can only think of two teachers who I had that experience from, and they both were women of color. And I think that my other teachers just did not, because they didn't have to. Like, it's not something that they were thinking about. It wasn't like a big systematic, like, we need to be this thing. And they were white folks not from my neighborhood, had no common experiences, and they teach the way that they've always taught, the way that they learned to talk, the way that they were taught, and that just worked for them. So they assumed that it would also work wherever they went. I just don't think that a lot of my education in my formative years came from school. It came from home and my elders and church leaders and community leaders, which was fine for me, but I feel really strongly about students being able to have that experience with the teachers that they see in the classrooms every day. Like they should be your community members and leaders and, you know, folks that you see around, not just in schools, but one like crazy meaningful experience that I always talk about this lady who inspired me to be a teacher, Miss Bofield, she was this loud Puerto Rican lady. I love her to death, but I hated ELA. Funny enough, I became an ELA teacher. Like I just wasn't into it. None of the texts were interesting. It was just lame. So we're getting into this unit about a like tale of two cities in Lemiz, which is boring. Those books are as thick as dictionaries. And I was just like, I'm not here for it. So I come from like a musical family and background and she knew this and she also had similar experiences. So and in retrospect, I know that it wasn't just for me, but in that moment, you couldn't tell me that she didn't do this unit for me. So we come in and she's like, oh, we're about to start this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this lady like turns on the music. She like walks across chairs and desks, singing at the top of her lungs, like the opera version of Tale of Two Cities. And I was like, this lady is crazy, but I'm here for it. Like, what do you have to teach me? What do, what do I have to learn from you? And held me to high expectations throughout the unit because she saw the potential in me. We had like, our culminating activity was going to see it at the opera in San Francisco. Like it was an experience that sticks with me to this day. And she knew that she needed to go above and beyond to like get kids hooked in, which is something that sticks with me and my practices in CRP in the classroom. Wow. That's what's up. Talk about dedication. I am here for it. And I think like this comparison or maybe a, a tangent or one-off of CRP is like in my brain as a CRP educator, I'm like, oh, I have to be culturally responsive just to my students, like just to their experiences, but also thinking about how you can translate that to the content that you're teaching. It doesn't always mean that it's like, oh, I teach predominantly black students. So now everything in my classroom has to be black. Yes. Phenomenal. Right. And having windows and mirrors, just like Taylor brought up a few episodes ago, exposing children to different, different things that they may not have seen before. So shout out to your teacher. That's phenomenal. I love you, Ms. Bofield. So shout out to her. And I brought that question up because I, you know, I think more so now um, in present day, I think that people are more aware of CRP being culturally relevant or culturally responsive. And so that's why I was thinking about that comparison of like our experience versus like what's happening now. So, um, and thinking about what's happening now, uh, what do you see, what do you all see as some common pitfalls for the use of CRP in the classroom? I was waiting to, to jump in on this one because 
So when you mentioned that, and I think this is a very common thing in the STEM subject, right? In the sciences and the maths, like well, we can't really incorporate uh, CRP and, and you know, DEI practices because it's the sciences, it's the maths, you know, it's the STEM subjects. And I remember when, when you mentioned that, Dana is like, like shook her head, like, yeah, no, that's, not, you know, that's just not the case. So I'm actually, I'm itching for us to actually, you know, drill into that a little bit more because it's another thing that I also want to push my core members who are teaching the STEM subjects to do more of. I think that the pitfall is like only trying to connect to children based off of the identities that you see when you walk in the room. I think that a pitfall is like looking for a checklist and like, I can do this thing and I'm like responsive. But I say it's a way of life because it lives, it's a continuum. Like you're not just gonna up, wake up one day and be responsive and like, oh my gosh, I figured it out and you're done. It should be a part of like your systems and routines and your relationships. And before, whenever I do CRP sessions, I always talk about responsiveness being built on a foundation of knowing and understanding your kids and their families and what they bring to the table. Like you can't take my examples of responsive activities or projects and put them in your classroom because you don't have my kids. Like, what do your kids like? What do you know about your kids and their families and their culture that they bring to the table that you can be responsive to? Like, not all Black people like the same thing. So you can't do what I did for my children. So just like be really intentional about learning and understanding in a meaningful way your kids in the community that you serve. Like, we... We are part of Teach for America, and often we are moving to communities that we are not from. And it's easy to like be in this TFA bubble and like be with your TFA people and not be invested in learning and understanding the community because the commitment is only two years. Like, thank you for your two years, but in that time, like, really dive into the community that you are living in, learn your neighbors, learn the culture, and not just like the touristy culture, but like the things that kids and families deal with on a daily basis and just build meaningful relationships. Because then when you are creating a lesson, you look at this lesson and you're like, this is tired and has no representation and has no activities that connect to my children because I know what they like. And you can make those decisions in the moment. It's like, it's responsive. Like you're being responsive in the moment to things that come up. And it's not like, let me look at this checklist and like implement this one thing because that's just not the way it works. I I really appreciate everything you just said and I want to like pause for a moment to clarify the difference between culturally relevant pedagogy aka CRP and DEI because very often those two things are like melted together and conflated and used as synonyms when they are two different things and so CRP is called pedagogy. And if you break down the word pedagogy, that means it is for kids, for students, like learning for students. How are you gonna enact this for students? DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusiveness, which is honestly just a bunch of letters unless you know exactly what you're doing, is how are you developing your leadership as a teacher to be able to enact culturally relevant pedagogy? So like what learning and unlearning and relearning are you doing for yourself to make sure that you have the capacity 
and the will and the desire to even ask your kids what they like, to even ask your families what they need. Because if you don't even feel, if you don't even understand that you have biases and blocks in place, you're going to be blocking your own blessings and kids are going to drag you all up and through that classroom because they're going to be like, no, she's fake. They fake. I don't want this. And so I think understanding the fundamental difference between those two, they need to happen together and they can't happen in isolation of each other. Like you have to do the self-work. And sometimes I hate that, like do the work is, is played out, but you have to understand yourself and know yourself before you need to get in front of anybody's kids, period. But you done, you done dropped it. Like all three of y'all then dropped the mic, right? I am in here learning, y'all. I knew walking into this conversation that I was going to be, my cup was going to be filled. However, y'all are preaching right now. And that's why I really do believe that relationship building is so important with kids. And Absolutely. Um, and it's not like you're going in there to be their friends. Because let me tell you something. I had a strong relationship with my kids, but they knew that they were children and I was the adults that that's another pitfall like you're in there to like get to know them so we could like you know figure out what we have in common so we could be friends like that is not what I'm saying like learning and understanding how kids think and process and the ways that they see the world because another part of CRP is the windows and mirrors like they need to be looking at different perspectives and point of views so if I don't know your perspective and point of view I can't like challenge you and push you to grow and learn and understand different people and cultures another and I just remembered another pitfall that I wanted to talk about was just like taking a break and doing things separately from curriculum like we're going to stop our regularly scheduled program to celebrate Black History Month that's not a thing, actually. Like, it should be ingrained, it should be a part, and it should flow seamlessly into the work that you're doing. And if you have to stop what you're doing to celebrate cultures that are represented in your classroom, it's time to take a look at what you are putting in front of them, because they should always see themselves in the curriculum. They should always see examples of like not just a physical representation, like putting pictures up on a slide, but they should be reading about folks with similar stories and situations. They should see themselves in some kind of way, like another teenager dealing with like friends and like navigating different things. They should be learning about things that impact their community. So in sciences and math, how can we talk about diseases? How can we talk about COVID, like we need to be talking about vaccines and how that is impacting the communities that are represented in your classroom. Like those are seamless things. And it's just like another step. Like, yeah, I know prepping lessons is hard, but take not 15 minutes at the end of the lesson and be like, what if I am one of my students, like what am I getting and what can I take from this lesson outside of this classroom and apply it to my actual life? And if you can't come up with anything, I need you to go add something back to that list. Please, thank you. I love everything you just said. And, and the only thing I would even want to push back on, and it, which is, it's not really much of a pushback, actually. I'm really just adding on. I really want to push back on the notion that like doing CRP or just doing the extra planning is more work. Like it, it definitely feels like it, right? But what you're really doing is you're just putting in the, you're, you're preloading the work on your end. Because what ends up happening 
is if you nail the lesson, right? You make it relevant to the kids, the kids get it. You don't have to go back and review too much. You don't have to deal with all this like management and keeping kids engaged and having to do a ton of check for understanding. Oh, you didn't get it? Well, okay, let's let's see. Well, how, what else can I do? And then it starts bringing all the stress factors. And it, when you plan it out in a way that you just, you know what your kids like, you know what they're into, it's, it's actually, it's, it's just about the same amount of work. You know, you're just doing a lot of the work beforehand. I don't know why CRP just makes me just, um, but I also want to add as someone who has, has worked a few institutes and is responsible for training core members before they even get into the classroom, a pitfall that always comes up is the lack of expectations and thinking, oh, I am going to be culturally responsive. My kids go through enough, so I'm not gonna have any expectations in my classroom. Let's, let's have a moment of silence for that. Now, don't get it twisted. My first year of teaching, y'all can go ask my principal. We had beef. We was beefing my whole first year. And she will listen to this and she will laugh because she knows it's true. We did not like each other because she was like, you can't just have five-year-olds running around the classroom like this. And I'm like, but I mean, they're five. I don't want to give them, uh, I don't want to, uh, whatever, whatever BS answer I was trying to give. And I quickly learned that for my mental well-being and for my kids' safety, it was imperative that there were expectations. Now, Something that I have learned over time as well is if your academic expectations are strong, there's, there is very little need for behavioral expectations. And that is, where, that is where core members specifically start. They start with behavioral expectations first, which is then how the classroom turns into feeling icky. Kids need procedures. They need to know, like, if I got to go to the bathroom, what do I do? If I need a pencil, what do I do? If I need a tissue, because five-year-olds always need a tissue. Things are always coming out of their orifices. What do I do? And if, if you have those in place, kids feel safe to learn and to be themselves. And you don't have to do management. And I'm actually trying to get away from using the term classroom management, because why do you have to manage kids? You should be a facilitator. This is all like, this is gonna sound like very woo-woo, but like you should be a facilitator of your kids. And this is as someone who, tried and did stuff that was probably not what a promising practice of CRP, you should be, a, I'm not saying be their friend, there should be a boundary and kids should understand that. They should know when it's time to play and when it's time to be serious. And they should also feel safe and comfortable enough to come to you if things happen at home or in your classroom. But things always happen at recess and then it gets brought back into my classroom and I got to find out the teeth from this child over here, well, who hit who? And now I gotta have a whole conversation. Like they need to feel safe enough to do that and only expectations allow for that. Talking about academic success, cultural competence and critical consciousness, like all those things work together, but the part of academic success 
that I always try to like reiterate is like high and transparent academic expectations. Mm -hmm. You can have academic expectations for kids all day long, but if they don't know what they are and you just like expect them to know how to Mm -hmm. be a seventh grader or be a kindergartner, you're going to struggle because you're not communicating with the children or their families. Mm -hmm. And that's also something you might need to like dig into because why don't you feel like you need to communicate those things? Well, and that was something that I had to unlearn because, and we often do like an educational autobiography for our core members. Mm -hmm. And it's like, think back to how you were as a student. I was a very compliant student. I listened, I followed directions. I got rewarded for my good behavior. I talked a lot, shocker. And that always got put on my um, progress report. But like, I was taking some of that into the classroom. And I was like, well, you should just know what to do at five and six. Mm -hmm. Because when I was in kindergarten, I knew what to do. No, I didn't. (laughs) Somebody, Miss Kaysen had to tell me, I'm sure. And so being very clear and transparent and honest about like, these are the expectations. Here's the reason why this thing exists. And this is what the follow-up is going to be. Not punishment, but what is the follow-up going to be if there is a breach if you do not meet these expectations and then we can go from there but you can't jump straight to the punishment for things that kids don't know exist i did that a lot my first year i never named what you were supposed to do i never told you to sit down so i'm going to give you a i'm going to put you on red for not sitting down exactly i ain't never tell you that that's not fair uh i i don't know it, it felt it in me to say it could be a kindergarten or it could be all the way up to high school. Like the issues are very, very similar. Exactly. And implementing those expectations, it's, it might be difficult in the beginning. Like I implemented like this whole notebook system because I was sick of packets. I was like, I'm not printing anything else. So we're going to do this notebook thing. And if you don't have your notebook, then there's going to be a consequence. Also, you're in seventh grade. You should be able to like keep up with the notebook. So like Sticking to that and holding them to that high expectation, notebook checks every semester. Like, I am, this is the hill that I will die on. And by the time the holidays came around, they were experts. But it took me a couple of months to hold them to that expectation and have that like instilling responsibility and like personal responsibility of your grades and like your your thing. And it's just like sometimes you just, it's going to be rough, but like, hold to those expectations because kids will they're gonna see how long you're gonna try and hold them to the expectation first of all I was terrible in middle school I'm gonna push your button and what if I don't bring my notebook what are you gonna do oh you I'm telling I'm calling your mama and I'm telling and you're gonna give me 50 cents every time I have to get you a new notebook like you're gonna get sick of it eventually but you're gonna I'm gonna hold you to this expectation and you're gonna rise to the expectation because you can and you just wanted to see how long I was going to hold out that all year, friend. Y'all are hitting on some super important like topics in terms of pitfalls. And I think that you're even naming things that even today in 2021, as even though I'm not in the classroom, but as a person who continues to learn more about CRP, things that I am unlearning right now in this moment. So thank you for sharing all of those. And y'all kind of started to hit on this piece because I feel like from our, the beginning of our conversation, CRP can kind of maybe feel cumbersome to a lot of people. It can feel like a lot. It can feel like, oh my goodness, I don't know where to start. So 
y'all are mentioning uh, student expectations. Y'all are mentioning, you know, that the CRP is a way of life. How do you all introduce the topic of CRP? How can your core members introduce CRP in their classroom, given the fact that it is a way of life, if it is something new to them? There's never going to be a time where I tell my students, like, all right, guys, this is what CRP is, and this is what we're going to do. You know, like, I would never say that. But I'd say at the, at the foundation of the practice itself is the relationships, right? If I don't have trust from my students enough, and, and, and part of it also for me, the one thing that I had to learn is I was very closed off with my students. Like I didn't share a whole lot of myself because I was quote unquote being professional, right? I was like, oh, I'm, they can't know too much about my personal life. But I realized that our relationship say, between teacher and student was that it was very transactional it was very professional i guess so there wasn't any intimacy so i didn't i didn't know them very well and they didn't know me very well but once i started opening up to them a little bit more then they started opening up to me a little bit more and before i knew it then we started learning a lot about one another and thus i was able to teach in a way that connects better right and whether that's through uh things that that they can relate to, whether that was through conversations that we've previously had as a class. But yeah, I would say like for starters, relationships are foundational. I think just listening, listening to kids when they speak, it, it connects to Henry's relationship piece. Quite often as adults, I've been learning about like childifying or whatever it's called, childification. Basically, a child stays in a child's place and I'm the grown up and I know better than you. And we've all, we've had this conversation already of Ashley learning when she was on the bus trying to like not understanding that Scotlandville is a neighborhood in Baton Rouge. <laughs> and so there were very valuable things that my kids came to me with. And I think often we assume that kids, particularly small kids, are coming into us as empty vessels not knowing anything. And that's not true. They might bring it up at the most inopportune time, like in the middle of my writing lesson. Friend, I love that you went to the beach yesterday, but you interrupted my lesson. Can we talk about this later? <laughs> and so like understanding and really learning how to redirect them in a way to that shows, I want to hear your story. And it is also learning time. Can we talk about this at recess? That is something very easy. And you can just say, like, I want to talk to you. I want to learn about you. I want to know what you did over the weekend at home with your friends and your cousin. It's not in the middle of my lesson. And they will understand. And then y'all can share information. Like you said, Henry, share information back and forth so they can learn, like, oh, Miss Anderson likes to go to Canes on the weekends to get some chicken strips. Or Miss Anderson has a dog that she would like to bring to the school one day so y'all can meet him. Like, and just things like that so they can learn more about you because I didn't, I don't think I knew anything about my teachers. And when I saw them in the store, I was always shocked. Yeah, I'm gonna try and make this like as concise as possible because I've got a lot. But relationships, yes. And I think that um, there's always like this constant need with responsiveness to be a learner 
and always like learning and understanding people and systems and communities and yourself and your own biases, like always looking in that mirror and checking yourself and actively educating yourself and students on personal and sociopolitical issues that impacts students and their communities. I think CRP be feeling real heavy and it, it's just not. I think one of the ways that we as a region have like implemented CRP is like in our rubric. Responsive practices can fit anywhere because there, there are ways that we look just for like, consider how this task relates to students' lives. Like, did they have a variety of activities? Was their choice? Was their student voice? Like all of those things are encompassing of being responsive. And it's not like this big, heavy thing, like give kids space to bring their own experiences and share their own experiences that are relevant to the lesson. And it's like not, it's really not that deep. It's just intentional. And I think sometimes it's like scary because um, if I'm a first year teacher and I don't share identities and I don't like think and operate the same way, is there something wrong with me because I don't find value in student voice? It's just not something wrong with you. It's just something that you need to interrogate and look into and consider, not consider, like something that needs to be implemented, just including those things in your classroom. Like how are you fostering collaboration? How are you giving space for students to bring their own knowledge and understanding into the space? Like I have learned so much from my kids. I really think that I learned more from them than they learned from me. They are like constantly my teachers and I love them for that. And I just, yeah, like let them be curious, let them like be piqued by the right question and like be inquisitive, like just let them be kids. I think you were like talking about the childification. I didn't know that was a word, but just like let them be your teacher and be responsive to the things that they bring to the classroom. Absolutely. And I think y'all have even just in the conversation simplified it just a bit like here in the definition you could think it's like this lofty thing but it's like no actually it's a way of life and there are tangible ways that you can you know enact and be a part of and live into CRP so thank you all for sharing that I definitely am continuing to learn (laughs) throughout this conversation so um, before we close out I just wanted to know if you all Um, knew of any resources that folks could use to learn more about CRP, teachers, educators, folks who work maybe in just in the educational space in general, maybe like us that work in the nonprofit world. What are some resources that y'all know of? I'll link some in the show notes, um, but I'm just wondering at top of mind, if y'all have anything that maybe you've relied on or resources that you always point your core members to. Yeah, I mean, if you like to read, got a list. Why are all the black kids sitting in the cafeteria together? Beverly Tatum, Responsive Teaching in the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. Like I, I sit at the feet of all the black women who have been doing this work forever. And I just like read and like soak in all of the things. But also like Google is your fucking. Like you know your kids. And if you don't know your kids, you gotta go back a step and learn the kids. And knowing that, like I would Google like how to incorporate physical activity with like Google people have been teaching forever and there are resources out there. Somebody has already done it. And 
it's okay to like go and see what somebody else has already done. Like knowing that, so if I'm math teaching, I'm teaching like the Pythagorean theorem or whatever, and I know that kids are super tactile, like what do I have around my room? Can I put these pins and rulers together and let them build the slope and explain it to me? Yes, I can. And that can also give them an opportunity to show their learning and understanding of the concept and now all I got to do is help you bridge the gap so you can show that on LEAP because you can't use, you know, pens and rulers on the test. But like there are lots of ways just to give kids space to express their knowledge of the topic. And the work is helping them present it in a way that is, you know, acceptable for our standardized testing. But that's a whole other conversation. <clears throat> I'll only I'll give one because I think this one is a classic and if you're not already uh, familiar with it, you should familiarize yourself with it because I think it's a great resource. So yeah, it used to be called teaching tolerance. Now it's called learningforjustice.org. They have some phenomenal resources on CRP practices, a lot of uh, relevant topics, uh, today's news and you know how to maybe talk about them with your kids. There's all kinds of good stuff on there that if you're not familiar with, you should definitely check it out. Three books, Dream Keepers by Dr. Gloria Lassen Billings. That's just like foundational CRP text. And why not read the book of, the, of one of the main researchers of CRP? Other People's Children by Dr. Lisa Delpit, who is a Baton Rouge native, uh, professor, advocate, veteran teacher. And then Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks. It's also a great, it's less CRP related, but it's adjacent. And also look at the teachers around you and go watch them teach. And look and see what they're doing to see how you can incorporate that and make that work for you and your kids. Ask the kids, ask them, ask them, ask them what, what they like to do. Ask them like what, you really be surprised at some of the ideas that I get from kids and I, like take intellectual credit i didn't come up with that they uh, we were talking outside on the playground and they gave me an idea and i was just like that's actually really amazing and i don't see why we can't incorporate that in our lesson i just i'd be down to try anything because i mean what what do i gotta lose yeah I, I, how, how did i not think of that that's 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 so smart because who knows what kids want to hear better than kids right like it's like if you, they know the audience better than you do, whether you like that or not. So, yeah, hello, easy. Yeah, it could all be so simple, but you'd rather make it hard, okay? you rather make it hard. So just don't make it hard, y'all. Shout out to the, to the people out there. Don't make it hard. Don't make it difficult. It's a way of life. CRP is, is it. If you ain't been tapped in, now's your time. <laughs> so I just want to... Thank Dana um, for coming on today. Thank you so much um, because Dana, you are phenomenal. Um, and I really do appreciate the time you took out today to number one, teach us a few things, you know, learn, have this conversation. And then to also teach the people out there because this is a very, very, very important conversation, especially in the world that we're living in because teaching online, even though I know a lot of kids are in person right now, but the pandemic, teaching in the pandemic, school in the pandemic is difficult. And we have to make sure that we're doing everything in service of our kids. So shout out to y'all. Thank you for this conversation. <laughs>
Thank y'all for having me. Um, I'm not even going to be like fake humble, but like I am, expert is a stretch. Like I quite literally sit at the feet of black women who have been doing this work and I just aspire to be like them. I am just so grateful for my elders and their brilliance and I'm just excited and honored to be able to do like a small portion of that work in my role. So of course we're always going to leave you with a wondering, a question. Um, we're still waiting on some notes to come to our inbox. So if you got something you want to add to the conversation or you have some learnings that you have from our discussions, please let us know. But our exit ticket today is what new learnings are you taking from this conversation? And how will you implement these learnings into your day-to-day -day life as a teacher, um, as an educator, even if you're not in the classroom, maybe you work in the education space, what are you doing there? So give us a shout out, um, give, send us an email at entangled at teachforamerica.org. We would love to hear from you and hear your voice. So thanks y'all. And we are, that's it for today. We're out. See y'all next time. <laughs> See y'all next time.